And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is April the 11th, 101st day of the year. 264 days remain till the year's over with. This is National Pet Day. Anniversary of the Battle of Rivas. Uh, dog Therapy Appreciation Day. Now, every dog needs therapy. Global Day to End Child Sexual Abuse. International Be Kind to Lawyers Day. International Louie Louie Day. National Barbershop Quartet Day. National Cheese Fondue Day. National Clean Up Your Pantry Day. National 8-Track Tape Day. National James Day. National Marketing Operations Appreciation Day. National Poutine Day. It's said to be a delicious fast food dish. I wouldn't know, haven't had any. National Ranch Water Day. National Submarine Day. Southland Anniversary Day. Indulge your adventurous side on Scotland's uh, on Southland's uh, anniversary day with various activities in New Zealand. And World Parkinson Day. Having said all that, in 491, Flavius Anastasius becomes the Byzantine Emperor with the name of Anastasius the First. 1241, Batu Khan defeats Bela the Fourth of Hungary at the Battle of Mohi. 1512, War of the League of Cambrai. Franco-Ferris' forces, led by Gaston de Foy and Alfonso I, d'Este, won the Battle of Ravenna against the Papal Spanish forces. 1544, Italian War. French army defeats Habsburg forces at the Battle of Sarasoy, but uh, fails to exploit its victory. And sometimes that's as bad as a defeat. 1689, William III married II crowned as joint sovereigns of Great Britain on the same day that the Scottish Parliament concurs with the English decision of February 12th. 1713, France and Great Britain signed the Treaty of Utrecht, bringing an end to the War of the Spanish Succession, also known as Queen Anne's War. Britain accepts Philip V as King of Spain, while Philip renounces any claim to the French throne. 1727, premiere of Johann Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew's Passion at St. Thomas Church in Leipzig, electorate of uh, Saxony, that's now Germany. 1809, Battle of the Bosque Roads. Admiral Lord Gambier fails to support Captain Lord Cochrane, leading to an incomplete victory over the French fleet. 1814, Treaty of Fontainebleau ends the War of the Sixth Coalition against Napoleon Bonaparte and forces him to abdicate unconditionally for the first time. 1856, Second Battle of Rivas. One Maria burns down the hostel where William Walker's filibusters are holed up. 1868, former Shogun Tokugawa Yoshinobu surrenders Edo Castle to Imperial forces, marking the end of the Tokugawa Shogunate. 1876, on this date, the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is organized. 1881, Spelman College is founded in Atlanta, Georgia, as the 
Atlanta Baptist Female Seminary and Institute of Higher Education for African American Women, which was something in those days rarely heard of. Alrighty. 1908, SMS Blucher, the last armored cruiser to be built by the German Imperial Navy, is launched. This date, 1909, the city of Tel Aviv is founded. 1921, Emir Abdullah establishes the first centralized government and newly created British Protectorate of Transjordan. 1935, Stress of Front, opening of the conference between British Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald, the Italian Prime Minister Benito Mussolini, and the French Minister for Foreign Affairs Pierre Laval to condemn the German violations of the Treaty of Versailles. Not that Hitler paid any attention. 1945, on this date, American forces liberate the Buchenwald concentration camp. This date, 1951, during the Korean War, President Truman relieves Douglas MacArthur, the command of American forces in Korea and Japan. Also on this date in 1951, the Stone of Scone, the stone on which Scottish monarchs were traditionally crowned, is found on the site of the altar of Arbroath Abbey. Been taken by Scottish nationalist students from its place in Westminster Abbey. 1952 Bolivian National Revolution. Rebels take over Palacio Clamato. Also on this date, Pan Am Flight 526A ditches near San Juan, Abu Grande Airport in San Juan, Puerto Rico. It experienced an engine failure. 52 people died. 1955 the Air India Kashmir Princess is bombed and Crashes in a failed attempt, uh, assassination attempt on uh, Zhao Junla by the uh, Kuomintang. Under fifty-seven, the United Kingdom agrees to Singapore self-rule. Regretted it ever since. Nineteen sixty-one, the trial of Adolf Eichmann begins in Jerusalem. He was kidnapped from his home in, I think it was Argentina, by uh, Assad undercover agents. And in 63, Pope John XXIII issues Passum in Terrace, the first encyclical addressed to all Christians instead of only Catholics, and which described the conditions for world peace in human terms. Then in 64, Brazilian Marshal Humberto de Alencar Castelo Branco is elected president of the National Congress. In 1965, the Palm Sunday tornado outbreak of 65. 51 tornadoes hit in six Midwestern states, killing 256 people. 1968, President Lyndon, I'm going to be King Johnson, signs the Civil Rights Act of 1968, prohibiting discrimination in the sale, rental, and financing of houses. He may have signed it, but had very little impact. 1968, assassination attempt on Rudy Dusch, leader of the German student movement. 1970, Apollo program. Apollo 13 is launched on this date. 1976, Apple I is created. 1977, London Transport Silver Jubilee AEC Route Master buses are launched. On this day in 1979, uh, the Ugandan dictator, General Dr. President Idi Amin Dada, is deposed. 1981, a massive riot in Brixton, South London, results in almost 300 police injuries and 65 serious civilian injuries. 1986, FBI Miami shootout. 
gun battle in broad daylight in Dade County, Florida, between two bank or armored car robbers and pursuing FBI agents. During the firefight, FBI agents Jerry Dove and Benjamin Grogan were killed. Five other agents were wounded. As a result, the popular 40 caliber Smith and West cartridge, Smith and Wesson cartridge was developed. 1987, the London Agreement secretly signed between Israeli Foreign Affairs Minister Shimon Peres and King Hussein of Jordan. 1990, customs officers in Middlesbrough, England, seized what they believed to be the barrel of a massive gun on a ship bound for Iraq. 1993, 450 prisoners noted, rioted at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville, Ohio, and continued to do so for 10 days. They cited grievances related to prison conditions, as well as the forced vaccination of the Nation of Islam prisoners for tuberculosis against their religious beliefs. 2001, the detained crew of a U.S. EP-3E aircraft that landed in Hunan, China after a collision with a J-8 fighter is released. 2002, the Gariba synagogue bombing of Al- by Al-Qaeda kills 21 in Tunisia. Also in 2002, over 200,000 people march in Caracas toward the presidential palace to demand the resignation of President Hugo Chavez. 19 protesters were killed. 2006, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad announces Iran's claim to have successfully enriched uranium. 2007, Algeria bombings. Two bombings in Algiers killed 33 people and wounded another 222. 2011, an explosion in the Minsk metro in Belarus kills 15 and injures 204. 2012, a pair of giant earthquakes occur in the Orton Basin west of Sumatra in Indonesia. The maximum Michele intensity of this strike ship doublet earthquake is 7, which is considered very strong. 10 are killed and 12 are injured, and a non-destructive tsunami is observed on the island of Nias. 2018, the Lucian I-76, which was owned and operated by the Algerian Air Forces, crashed near Balaric, Algeria, killed 257. And in 2021, 20-year-old Dante Wright is shot and killed in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, by Officer Kimberly Potter, sparking protest in the city when the officer allegedly mistakes her own gun for her taser. Duh. That just shows lack of attention to detail. Alrighty. You know, we've been talking about, uh, yesterday we were talking about ghosts in Las Vegas. And it's quite a haunted city. There's no question about that. The, um, you know, we finished yesterday's show. We were talking about Bugsy Siegel. He was a boyhood friend of Meyer Lansky. In 1931, an important event happened in the otherwise quiet western part of the country. Gambling was made legal in Nevada. Both Luciano and Lansky wanted to get their feet in the the door of the gambling scene, but uh, avoided moving the syndicate to Las Vegas because it was just so friggin' hot. They both did a small amount of business, long business, making brief trips to the new Mecca, but the majority of of, uh, the syndicate's business remained in New York and New Jersey. By 1937, Bugsy uh, 
Supposedly Siegel's tempered angled several powerful people. Luciano decided it'd be best to send Siegel to the West Coast to escape the wrath of his enemies and avoid the numerous contracts that reportedly been taken out on him. Masking Luciano worked their way into three Fremont Street properties using men with no records as fronts for the operations. They decided to get more involved with the race and sports book operations in the downtown Las Vegas casino, so they sent Siegel and Mo Sedway to investigate how this could be done. Well, Siegel helped the syndicate take greater control over the race and sports book. They had a complete monopoly. And Siegel had the charm to convince Las Vegas casino owners they needed the protection the mob could provide. Well, in spite of that, many of the casino owners were starting to complain about the mob's involvement, even going so far as to make formal complaints to Carson City. However, with the onset of World War II, the state capital was involved in doing its part for the war effort. Most of the government's attention was focused on the conflicts in Europe and the Pacific. And this, as you might guess, opened the door for the mob to get further involved. And they did. Now, Siegel was handsome. In fact, he was described as... Uh, Having movie star looks, he was quite the gentleman. And he was charming with the ladies who thought he in Hollywood would make a perfect match. Singer uh, Kay Starr said, I never met a more courtly, more gentlemanly man in my life. And I thought to myself, well, if this is a gangster, I'd like to know more of him. Well, Siegel agreed with her estimate and soon developed a fascination with the film industry. In California, Siegel was in his element. He loved the whole movie industry scene. Even dated actress Virginia Hill, though it didn't stop him from chasing other romantic interest. While he was in Las Vegas, he made a short trip to Los. Excuse me, while he was in Los Angeles, he made a short trip to Las Vegas many times on behalf of his boss. Now, at that point in time, Las Vegas was nothing more than a few casinos out in the middle of the desert. Siegel was a frequent guest in one of the two outlying casinos, the El Rancho on the Last Frontier. Stayed at these two casinos was because he didn't care for the smaller, less sophisticated casinos that were downtown. During a stay at the El Rancho, that Siegel got the idea for a luxurious resort hotel and casino on Highway 91. That was the highway that uh, would eventually become known as the Las Vegas Boulevard, or more famously as the Strip. And although, also some, although some would say Siegel saw the opening and operating of a Hotel Casino was a way of becoming a legitimate businessman. He was also a sociopath. More likely, he simply saw the resort as a way of moving mob operations closer to his beloved Hollywood. And to his credit, Siegel had a vision of taking the Las Vegas resort to the next level. In an attempt to emulate the resorts he stayed at in California, he wanted his resort to be a posh, luxurious place where the Hollywood elite could come play. By 1945, Siegel had managed to raise a million dollars toward the building of his new Flamingo Club. Later changed to uh, Flamingo Hotel for licensing purposes. Siegel was able to convince Meyer Lansky to allow him to build a resort. Found a property out on Highway 91 that was already struggling. Billy Wilkerson, a known gambler, had put more money than he could afford into the resort he wasn't able to finish. Siegel just stepped in and took over the project. Turned out building an oasis in the desert was far more involved than Siegel could have foreseen. Construction was taking way too long. Something noted by Luciano who was impatient to see some return on his investment. Luciano insisted Siegel open the flamingo before it was ready. 
Because they were used to seeing immediate results in their investments, the syndicate bosses held a meeting in Havana, Cuba, the day before the opening of Flamingo. They said if the Flamingo turns out to be a success, Siegel could be given a chance to pay back the loan. If not, he had to be eliminated. Well, the grand opening proved to be a disaster, and the money didn't flow in as expected. On, the, on an evening in June in 1947, Ben Siegel, accompanied by associate Alan Smiley, arrived at the bungalow. He shared with Virginia Hill in Hollywood. He just got a haircut and a manicure. Sat on the sofa in the living room, reading the Los Angeles Times in front of an open window. What about 10.30 p.m., a hailstorm of bullets from a 30 caliber military M1 carbine shattered a quiet Hollywood night. Two bullets found their way through the open window into Siegel's head. Two more hit his ribs and one went into his lungs. Three shots missed entirely. So Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was dead at 41 years of age. And even though his demise was front page news across the country, only five people, all family members, attended his funeral. His boyhood best friend and trusted partner, Myra Lanks, he was in Havana and didn't make it back in time. His lover, Virginia Hill, was in Switzerland. Not a single one of Ben's new Hollywood buddies found the time to attend. And for a man who had such grandiose visions of himself, it was a sad, embarrassing end. Ever since the day Siegel was killed, there have been thousands of reports of appearances by his ghost. Some of those common had been reported in his personal suite. Before the suite was demolished in 1993, the green toilets, bidet, and the Neumann in both bathrooms were original, having been uh, personally chosen by Siegel. And while he stayed at the hotel, he was an avid pool player, and it said at the pool table that uh, guests have reported uh, seeing a ghostly man standing, getting ready to shoot. The demolition of Bugsy Suite hadn't stopped him from haunting his beloved flamingo. The other report comes from a couple on their honeymoon. They met up with two other couples who all sat by the pool one warm summer night. At one point, they saw a man standing near the pool in a pair of slacks and an old-style, pristine smoking jacket. The man seemed to be looking at the women, one of whom commented it was odd to see a man wearing a smoking jacket in the 1990s, especially on such a warm night. Moments later, when the men returned from swimming, the bride went to point out the man, but when they looked, he was gone. She described him to the men as a handsome man with intense eyes, wearing a smoking jacket and slacks. Next day, when a newly married couple was reading through the history of the hotel, they saw a drawing of Bugsy. The bride told her husband, that looks just like the man in a smoking jacket. He's most often seen in the Rose Garden near his memorial plaque. This is where a couple from Iowa saw the ghostly apparition. One of them said we saw him over by the fountain and thought he was one of the Bugsy tour guides, the way he was dressed. It was about 10 in the evening and still almost 100 degrees. Felt sorry for him having to wear that shirt, the tie, and wool jacket. Other people started coming up to the fountain and nobody seemed to notice him. And then this woman walked right through him. Scariest thing we ever saw. I don't think the woman even saw him. She was posing for a picture and smiling. Well, Bugsy may not have lived to see the success of the resort he envisioned in the desert. His ghost seems to be happy with the work he started. As none of the sightings ever report to ghosts being anything other than cordial. While he may have earned the moniker of Bugsy in life, he may have mellowed just a bit. In death, he seems to be just a good old Ben. 
Interestingly, the Flamingo doesn't allow the Haunted Vegas tour to visit the hotel anymore, although officials won't say why. That's because the Flamingo, according to the Haunted Vegas tour, was listed as one of the ten most haunted sites in America by the Wall Street Journal. There are many who say that getting that name is not good for business. But I know several places who played up the, the haunting and have done quite well from it. In fact, for 20 years, I did ghost tours here in El Paso at some of the best hotels in town. They loved it. Well, for Big C Ben Siegel, let's turn to Red Fox. He made a living from his portrayal of a lovable, grumpy old man who said what he wanted, when he wanted. His Las Vegas home, well, not a mansion by any means, was his pride and joy. So much so he refused to leave, and when the IRS took it away from him, now, there was a young lady named Norma who was tired of the things that were happening at work. She hated typing out a report only to have the font change color to red on its own in the middle of her document. Sick of the cold breezes and sounds of a party coming from the backyard when the pool, where the pool used to be, especially when there was nobody there. So when it was decided to do a seance at Red Fox's former home, Norma was all for it. Never understood, she said, why they had to make those things so spooky. Were the candles and the dim lighting really necessary? Well, in spite of her misgivings, took her in place at the round table, decorated with the seance tricks of the trade, and watched as her fellow employee sat down with her. Medium then came into the room and sat at the head of the table. After a few moments, the medium said, before we began, I need everybody to clear their mind of all doubt and fear. What if for us to be able to contact the other side, we all need to allow ourselves to be open to the possibility of contact. Just a moment, I'll invite the spirits from the other side to come join us. Well, it all seemed a little theatrical to Norma. She was having a hard time keeping the open mind the medium requested. But still, she was a team player. She did her part, taking the hands of the people on either side ever, as instructed by the medium and closing her eyes, she concentrated. And then the medium began to speak, and he said, Red, are you here with us this evening? Are you in your house? Can we speak with you? Well, she watched as the medium appeared to go into a trance. She thought to herself, if her eyes rolled back in her head, I'm getting out of here. Medium started to sway back and forth, almost as if she was listening to some inaudible music. Medium's mouth opened wide, and Norma swore she heard the medium say, This is my house, and I'm never leaving it. Well, John Elroy Sanford, born in St. Louis, Missouri, December 6, 1922. He was born into extreme poverty. By the time he was four years old, his father left the family. When he was 13, he moved to Chicago and joined the band. He and three of his friends formed the Washtub Band. They called the Bonbons with Sanford playing the washboard. Well, after three years playing together in Chicago, the band eventually disbanded. And that left Sanford to make his own way in the entertainment world. Well, as a kid... 
Sanford had a bit of a ruddy complexion, which gave way to his, to his nickname of Red. He uh, flirted with the name Chicago Red because he was living in Chicago at the time. He used the name when he joined, moved to New York, and took a job as a dishwasher. He was out working as a dishwasher. He met a young man by the name of Malcolm Little. And the two worked together, washing dishes. Little adopted the name uh, Detroit Red as a joke. Little would eventually change his last name one more time, choosing uh, a single letter, the letter X. He became known as Malcolm X. Kyle Chicago read the funniest dishwasher on this earth in his uh, autobiography. Well, Sanford wouldn't keep the name Chicago Red for long. Reports differ on what the change on uh, when the change took place. It was eventually settled on the last name of a famous baseball player by the name of Jimmy Fox. When he added the baseball, great's last name to his own nickname, Red Fox was born. He started working in comedy clubs in New York on what was then called the Chitlin Circuit because the, the audiences were mainly black. While working the Chitlin Circuit, that Fox met uh, Melvin Slappy White. And Fox and White developed a lifelong friendship while working comedy clubs as a team all across the country. Now, their comedy was adult-oriented, uh, often causing them to be uh, hooked with the tagline, uh, Red, White, and Blue. Longtime friend and entertainment writer Joe Delaney once said Red was basically a funny guy and he was as dirty as he felt he had to be to get along with the audience. One of his trips to Los Angeles, Fox was approached by executives at a Dutone record label who wanted him to record a series of comedy albums. Well, Fox and White took to the records with a fury, recording many albums that were called uh, party records. It was through these recordings that Fox began to make a name for himself. And it was during this time period Fox arrived in Las Vegas. In the 50s, Las Vegas was a very modern town with a strong southern presence. That meant it still remained a stalwart supporter of segregation. While African Americans made up more than 10% of the town's population, it was still banned from many downtown casinos and clubs. Fox, though, was a perfect fit for Vegas. He was a comedian whose vulgarity drew a line in the sand. He either loved it or hated it. There was no in-between. He started his Las Vegas career as a small casino called the San Sushi Hotel Casino. Boasted 100 deluxe rooms and advertised refrigerated air conditioning, a snack bar, and a telephone in each room. Also had a swimming pool and a restaurant called uh, Diana's Original Pancake and Chicken House. It later changed its name to the Castaways before eventually being destroyed. With the Mirage opened on the land where it once stood, Fox continued to perform at the Castaways in the Samoa Room with the then unknown individual by the name of Tony Orlando and Kenny Rogers, before eventually moving on to the uh, Hacienda Hotel Casino. Fox would be the last African-American to perform in front of an entirely white audience, paving the way for other comedians like Flip Wilson, Richard Pryor, and Eddie Murphy. In 1970, Fox signed a three-year contract with the Sahara for $960,000. That was an unheard of sum. Contact guaranteed him 32 weeks a year and allowed him to build his cherished Las Vegas home. He loved that home, once saying, this is my house and I'm never leaving it.
Living there, he took to gambling. Specifically, Keno was his game. He was a died-in-the-world Keno player, according to John Bonney, the vice president of casino operations for Sahara Resorts. Who had a special chair and window for him. He'd have one of his staff play his numbers when he was performing. Bonney claimed that Fox used Keno and small-stakes poker as a way to relax. One long-time Las Vegas resident remembered seeing Fox at the Keno Lounge. Could be the nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. And generous, or foul-mouthed and rude. Just depending on how his luck was going that night. Well, in the 1970s, segregation was no longer a factor in Las Vegas. Frank and Dean and Sammy and the rest of the Rat Pack had helped to further promote the rights of African-American entertainers. And a new TV show called All in the Family was breaking down boundaries and changing stereotypes. A year earlier, Fox was approached by... Ossie Davis and offered a small role on his film Cotton Comes to Harlem. Fox played uh, Booker Washington uh, Sims, better known as Uncle Bud, who was an aging junk dealer. Well, while the film got mediocre praise, it did catch the attention of Norman Lear, the creator of All in the Family. Lear was looking to create an African, an American uh, television show based on the, the British comedy Steptoe and Son about a middle-aged man and his elderly father who ran an un unsuccessful junk business. Fox was eventually cast in lead role and his original last name was used in place of Steptoe. Sanford and Son debuted three days after the one-year anniversary of Lear's wildly successful All in the Family. Sitcom was a huge success and Fox became an overnight sensation. His character, like All in the Family's Archie Bunker, was a bigoted man who refused to see life in the modern world. Unlike Bunker, Fred G. Sanford was always coming up with get-wit-quit schemes that frustrated his son Lamont, played by DeMond Wilson. Fox became famous for his fake heart attacks on film, which he used when the scheme went awry when Lamont threatened to leave. He'd put a hand over his heart and stretch out the other one and go, this is the big one. I'm coming, Elizabeth. That was his character's dead wife. Show ran from 1972 to 1977, more than 130 episodes. And, of course, it was a financial windfall for Fox, who uh, spent freely on cars and jewelry and Kino. Also, though, to his friends, giving Slappy White a recurring role on a sitcom as his friend Melvin in five episodes. During the run of Stepford and Son, uh, Stepford, Sanford and Son, Fox continued his Las Vegas performances. 1976, Fox and NBC reached an impasse over financial compensation for Sanford and Son. Fox left Hollywood and returned to his beloved home in Las Vegas. Sent a telegraph to NBC executives saying, I'm sick in Las Vegas and I'm going to stay sick until the man from NBC comes up with the money to make me well. Well, the settlement was eventually reached in 1980 and Fox returned to the set of Sanford and Son. Unfortunately, Wilson chose not to uh, return to the show without him. It failed to generate significant viewer interest and was canceled. And then he had uh, Fox had a short run on CBS with uh, the Red Fox Comedy Hour. Well, in 1989, Fox uh, starred with uh, Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor in Murphy's movie Harlem Nights. As a result, he was sued by Las Vegas talent agent uh, Jackie Basto for uh, $50,000. Bastow claimed that she had negotiated Fox's contract with Murphy and was due for a 10% commission. Fox told District uh, Court Judge Thomas Foley he hadn't used Barstow's services. He said, I can hustle my own jobs. 
adding he had handled his own affairs since the 1950s. Now, the judge agreed and dismissed the case. Now, Fox was right. He had been handling his own affairs since the 50s, and that would unfortunately prove to be his downfall. And even though he made millions in 1983, he reached such financial difficulties he was forced to declare bankruptcy. The only bright spot was he was able to keep his home, many of his cars, and much of his jewelry. He probably thought he had dodged a bullet, but that bullet would return in 1989, one early one morning. He got a knock on the door of his house, face-to-face -face with agents of the Internal Revenue Service who claimed that he owed them $2.9 in back taxes, penalties, and interest. They seized eight of his cars, much of his jewelry, and other valuable items, took a portion of his current earnings. You know, I have to say that in my humble opinion, when the IRS overreaches like that, it wants to be paid right now. When has the government ever responded to a constituent right now? Fox made many attempts to settle the debt, but nothing seemed to work. In an interview with People magazine, Fox stated the agents didn't even treat him like he was human. Extremely patriotic, I think it really bothered him that some people thought he was trying to avoid taxes. According to Bonnie, I personally believe that put a strain on him. According to Mark Raceman's Fox attorney, the IRS put a real dent in him, but he showed a lot of courage and a lot of class to try and work through it. His trouble seemed to stem more from his incompetence as a businessman and less from any desire on his part to cheat the federal government. Still, he had a large debt to pay, and Fox was not the type of man to give up easily. 1991, Fox signed on for another TV series with his friend Della Reese, with whom he'd worked on the Harlem Nights. Sitcom, which was called The Royal Family, started Fox and Reese, who played a married couple entering their retirement years when their daughter and three grandchildren moved back into their home. Fox wasn't excited about the prospect of doing another TV show. He said, I can't work the hours I did on Sanford and Son. And he said that to the Las Vegas Review-Journal in 89 before he signed on with the royal family. He said, I'm an older man than I was then, and if I'm going to give up five years in the twilight of my life, then I want a payday. I'm comfortable here. I don't have any regrets. He was talking about his Las Vegas home. Well, he felt a great burden from the IRS debt, and by all accounts, this seemed to be the only reason he returned to Situation Comedy on TV. October 11, 1991, at about 4 in the afternoon, he was rehearsing a scene for Royal Nights when he suffered a heart attack on the set. Cast members initially thought Fox was doing his old Sanford and Son routine, but quickly realized it wasn't an act. When he went down, rushed to the hospital, and died at 7.45 p.m., the entire cast was by his side. Well, more than 700 friends and family attended Fox's funeral in Las Vegas, including his friends Slappy White, Eddie Murphy, George Caitlin, uh, excuse me, George Carlin, and Della Reese. Fox is buried in Palm Memorial Park in Vegas, a bright red fox decorating the upper right corner of his tombstone. IRS immediately stepped in and seized his Las Vegas home, and while Fox may have no longer owned the site on Eastern Avenue, he refused to leave. The first owner, an Elvis impersonator, bought the home and lived there with his uncle. Two complained of gold bre cold breezes that would never be linked to any source. He also claimed the lights came on at night. Doors and windows seemed to open and close on their own, and the floor creaked at night as somebody was walking around. One of the places that seemed most haunted wasn't even in the house. 
Voices are always heard from the pool in the backyard as if a party was going on. The back door will even open and close by itself. A vision of a ghostly red fox convinced the owner the house was haunted and he sold it after only nine months of occupancy. Michael Carrico and fellow investigators from Las Vegas Paranormal Investigations were allowed to enter the residence to conduct an investigation. Once inside, they were able to gather electronic voice phenomena in the area around the pool house where they heard laughter and conversation. A group of real estate agents bought the building and remodeled extensively, filling in the swimming pool and turning the backyard into a parking lot. But in spite of that, Red's ghost wasn't deterred. An employee recorded seeing the ghost. I think he meant to tell me something, walked right up like he's going to speak to me. Then he turned and vanished. While doors continued to open, items continued to be moved, and Fox's ghost continued to be seen, especially around the, his bedroom. Nobody felt the ghost meant any harm to anybody. Still, the ghost made work difficult at times, and the business decided to do something about it, so a seance was held. Well, when the seance was over, the medium told the owners that Fox was very proud of his Las Vegas home and wanted everybody to know it was his. New owners agreed to place um, small red foxes on the business sign that rest on the front lawn. They also placed lighting around the house, making it easier to see. And while this seemed to have appeased Fox somewhat, he would still show up every once in a while, pulling pranks such as making coffee cups disappear and teasing the ladies. Well, the IRS may have taken his home, but they certainly couldn't force him to leave. They couldn't even get a court order. Who's going to issue a court order against a ghost? Well, you know, there are certain names that will be forever linked with Vegas, one of which is Tupac Shakur. He was a popular rap singer and actor, and he was gunned down after attending a prize fight at the MGM Grand. For various reasons, the killer's never been brought to justice. Although a video made just before his death suggests he might have known the murder was going to happen. See, the day it happened, it was a typical Las Vegas evening. Five o'clock in the evening and 110 degrees. Leroy went to the airport to pick up his friend Lamont. Lamont's first visit to Vegas, and Leroy had to admit he was a little excited to show him around town. Leroy pulled the car up to the ramp on the way to the passenger pickup. Lamont was waiting, plaid shorts and all, smiling on his face as he approached. Leroy got out of the car to help his friend with his luggage and said, nice shorts, very gangster." And his friend responded, uh, funny, did you get it? Leroy said, you're not even in the car yet. And uh, Lamont repeated his question, did you get it? And Leroy responded, I told you I'd get it. Well, Lamont was all ready to go. Leroy said, hold your horses, there's plenty of time. He got into the flow of traffic, drove down the exit ramp, and circled onto the road and turned left onto... Swenson Avenue. They traveled north till they reached Tarpicana Avenue, where Leroy took another left. They were partially up the street when Lamont saw the Emerald Green building on the right side of the Tropicana. Lamont yelled, 
turned himself sideways in the seat and pointed and said, there it is, there's the MGM. That's where he was right before it happened. And uh, Leroy said, uh, yeah, I know that. Car reached the Las Vegas Boulevard and turned left when they started to pass the black, the black glass pyramid. Lamont yelled a second time. Look at that, that's the Luxor. That's where he was staying the night it happened. Leroy said, yeah, I know that too. Lamont said, well, that means he traveled down this very street. Same street we're on now. And Leroy said, yeah, that's right. And then Lamont said, well, take me to the house. I want to see the house. Well, in response, Leroy turned the car east on the Sunset Boulevard, just south of McCarran International Airport. That was where he'd picked up uh, Lamont. Traveling on Sunset, just past the airport. He got to Tamiyasu Lane and turned right. This area of Las Vegas Valley was known as Paradise, Nevada, and lived up to its name. The homes were mansions surrounded by large walls with ornate gates. The mansion they were looking for was a few houses down on the right, and Leroy pulled the car up to the dark ornate gates. Leroy said to his friend, there it is, Sugg's Las Vegas mansion. He was, of course, referring to Marion Sugg Knight, Jr., CEO and producer of Death Row Records. Lamont had asked him to find the address of the house. Well, both of them leaned into the windshield to get a good look at that house laid out before. So, and Lamont uh, made the comment, this is where Tupac stayed when he came to town. He said, man, this is some place. Drive around back. Well, they already started the cars beginning to pull away when his friend yelled, it's him, it's, it's really Tupac. Leroy stopped the car and said, what are you talking about? And he said, up there on the balcony, it's him. Well, Leroy turned his head and looked at the house, and sure enough, standing on the balcony was a young black man in his white 20s, spitting image of Tupac Shakur. Standing there looking contemplatively into the grounds of Knight's estate. Wanting a better look, Leroy backed up and spun the car around. Lamont never took his eyes off the balcony. And then he said, he's gone. He just vanished. Looking up at the balcony, Leroy could see the young man was no longer standing there. And he said, where'd he go? Lamont said he just disappeared. Well, Tupac Kamaru Shakur was born in East Harlem in New York City, June 16, 1971. Early years were made of multiple changes of addresses, attending political meetings, and scary dealings with the FBI. That was because both his mother and father were members of the political organization, the Black Panther Party. No more commonly as simply the Black Panthers. They were made up mainly of African Americans and was seen by the FBI as a radical organization. In fact, uh, J. Edgar Hoover once stated the Black Panthers were the greatest threat to the internal security of the United States. If you don't count J. Edgar himself. Shigeru's mother... Afeni Williams, originally Alice Fayle Williams, was one of the party's most fervent activists. She once said, uh, from the day, the moment I was arrested from my sleeping bed on 117th Street, the fight was on. And she gave speeches, started a free breakfast program for children, did fundraising, and worked as hard as she could for black freedom. During the late 60s, she met the Lumumba Abdul Shakur, who changed his name from Anthony Costin.
1969, Afeni and Lumumba, along with several other members of the Black Panthers, were arrested on 30 counts of conspiracy. Afeni faced 351 years of incarceration and had no reason to believe that either she or her husband Lumumba was, was still in jail to ever be acquitted. And she desperately wanted a baby. While out on bail, she started seeing a uh, fellow Panther, Billy Garland, and promptly got pregnant. She said, I got pregnant while I was out on bail. I never thought I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life in jail. I was never getting out, and that's why I wanted to have this baby. Well, Afeni was pronounced not guilty after a two-and-a-half-hour jury deliberation. A month later, gave birth to her first son, listing his name as Lucene Parrish Crooks on the birth certificate. Afeni gave her son the name to protect him from the FBI. However, later she would change his name to Tupac Amaru Shakur in honor of the last emperor of the Incan people and led an uprising against Spain but was ultimately beheaded. Even from the start, Shakur had a ominous future. He once said, I was cultivated in prison, my embryo was in prison. Now, that wasn't actually true, but it did seem to leave a mark on him, one that would affect him the rest of his life. Strangely enough, had Afeni not been arrested, Shakur may never have been conceived and certainly wouldn't have been born. His mother later said, if I thought I was getting out, I never would have had the baby. Probably would have gotten an abortion. The man who has an adult, tattooed uh, thug life on his abdomen was quiet and withdrawn as a child. He said, I read a lot. I wrote poetry. I kept a diary. He didn't have a great deal of material to write about. Not only was he poor, but his mother had had stayed an activist and was becoming addicted to crack cocaine. Also ruthlessly teased for his fine features, his long lashes and high cheekbones. He became a master to hiding his true feelings, but uh, he would soon be given an outlet for his emotions. When he was 12, his mother enrolled him um, in free acting classes, and he took to acting naturally and was chosen for the role of Travis in a community production of A Rising in the Sun. He said when the, later said when the curtain went up, I just caught the bug. Well, in 1985, the family moved in to Baltimore. It was in the Shakur at 14 years old, caught a break, and was accepted into the Baltimore School for the Arts. There he cultivated his talent. In 1988, he moved in with his mother and younger sister to Marin City, California. That was a crime-ridden city that earned the nickname The Jungle. He rapped everywhere he could, and anybody would listen. It was through rapping he started to truly make a name for himself. By the time he met music promoter Leila Steinberg, she had already heard about him. Well, Shakur and Steinberg formed assemblies in motion, an organization that brought talented performance to high schools in the area. And she once said of Shakur as back into the group, he took a lot of my infantile thought processes to the next level. Shakur looked with recording artist Gregory E., Shock G., Jacobs, and his group. Digital Underground, acting as a roadie and dancer, and pretended rapping whenever he got the chance. Shock G. allowed uh, Shakur to rap on stage with one of his songs, but his real break came when the artist allowed Shakur to have a solo on their next album. This is an EP release. 1991, Shakur began his career as a solo artist with the song Brenda's Got a Baby. Started spelling his name with the number two, Pack, and recorded his debut album, Two Pack of Lips Now. 
The first album did well. Second album that brought him uh, two top 20 pop chart hits, I Get Around and Keep Your Head Up. Two songs sent the album platinum, selling more than a million copies. It was at that point in time that um, he tapped into the bug that had bitten him as a youth. 1993, he played the romantic lead opposite Janet Jackson in Poetic Justice. He received uh, critical acclaim for his role in the film, as well as for his musical talent. However, he was also receiving just as much condemnation for his often violent lyrics. During the early 90s, he was both a perpetuator and a victim of violence on more than one occasion. He had signed on with Death Row Records by that time, and doing so became embroiled in a feud between East Coast and West Coast rappers. Also known to insult his enemies on his tracks. 1993 is arrested on a sexual assault charge. In 94, he was convicted of assaulting director Alan Hughes and spent several days in jail. Later that year, he was shot five times in the lobby of a record studio during a mugging. This incident happened on the day before he was sentenced to four and a half years in prison for the sexual assault case from the year before. Served eight months in prison and got released on bail. He was reportedly released after Death Row Records CEO Suge Knight uh, paid a bond of more than a million dollars. On the evening of September 1st, uh, 7th, 1996, Shakur and a number of his associates, including Knight, attended a Mike Tyson fight at the MGM Grand in Vegas. Tyson said Shakur had developed a friendship, and uh, Tyson invited his friend to come see him fight Bruce Seldom. Shakur had written a song called Wrote the Glory, which Tyson used during his interest at the ring. Even with all the build-up and the drawn-out opening bouts, it was an early evening. One minute and uh, nine seconds remaining in the first round. Tyson uh, scored a knockout, ending the fight only moments after it had begun. Well, as the crowd left the area and headed for the casino, Knight and Shakur went to galaterate Tyson. Tyson took the law and the group decided to leave, knowing they'd see him later at a party being held for him at Knight's Club 662 on the, over on Flamingo Avenue. As the group entered the casino, a member of the death row posse whispered something in Shakur's ear, causing him to run over to a man later identified as Orlando Anderson and start beating on him. Shakur and his entourage were seen punching and kicking and stomping on the man for unknown reasons. This uh, altercation, which uh, was caught on security surveillance tapes, resulted in a pretty bad beating, according to Las Vegas Metropolitan Police. And as you might guess, Secure and his party quickly left the scene as security descended on the, the, the site of the altercation. Tupac got in the passenger seat of Knight's black BMW and Knight got behind the wheel. There were one car and a large uh, convoy, including uh, many of Secure's entourage. After two quick stops, one at the Luxor to change clothes and a second stop at Knight's Las Vegas home, the entourage headed to Club 662. Now, the streets around the MGM are always crowded on a fight night, and this night was no different. As Knight's BMW crawled along, uh, they had to stop at a red light. About 10.55, while stopped at the light, Shakur rolled down to one at the crest of a photographer who took a last-known photograph of the popular rap star. As the BMW crawled along, they were again forced to stop at another red light, this time at the corner of Flamingo and Coverall Lane. Now, the mood in the BMW was light, and they were excited to get to the party. That's probably why nobody noticed the white late-model Cadillac that pulled up alongside the BMW on the passenger side. 
And according to a number of the occupants of the car behind Shakur and Knight, the rear window of the Cadillac rolled down. Arm appeared holding a gun. And while they watched, shots were fired through the rear and front doors of the BMW. As the cars began to scatter, Knight, knowing Tupac was badly wounded, tried to get Shakur to safety. Gun the engine of the bullet-ridden BMW made a sweeping U-turn heading down the, toward the strip. Hit a number of curves, flattening the tires and bending the rims, but made it to the strip before turning on to Harmon. At the corner of Harmon and Las Vegas Boulevard, the BMW stopped was immediately surrounded by the police. They initially thought the occupants of the BMW might be the perpetrators and not the victims. As Knight was pulled from the BMW and forced down on his stomach on the street, he was quickly handcuffed. When the bodyguard car arrived moments later, the bodyguards informed the police that Knight was the CEO of a record company and he was in the car that had been shot at. Police immediately removed the cuffs and apologized, and Knight's urging rushed to help the injured Shakur. After initially fumbling to get the passenger door open, the police pulled Shakur from the car, put him into an ambulance, and took him immediately to the University Medical Center. Well, he'd been hit by four rounds. One bullet hit him on his right hand, another struck his pelvis, ended up in his abdomen, a third struck his thigh, and the fourth entered his body under his right arm into his chest. Knight suffered a head wound. Shakur was injured badly, and although he'd been shot two times before, he wouldn't survive this shooting. On the afternoon of September 13, 1996, six full days after being shot, he died of internal bleeding. Officially pronounced dead at 4.03 p.m. Well, since that fateful day in 1996, a lot of folks have reported seeing Tupac standing on the corner from Lingo and Colville Lane, the corner where the killing took place. On many occasions, people walking in the area have noticed a young man, head shaved, wearing the same clothes Tupac wore in the picture taken just 20 minutes before he was shot. And he was standing looking at the road as if trying to see into the white Cadillac that pulled up next to him. And those people who have approached that young man say that as they near him, he vanishes. He's also reported, uh, his ghost has also been reported to have been seen on the balcony of Sug Knight's old Las Vegas mansion. Interestingly, more of Tupac Shakur's music has been released since his death and while he was alive. In all, ten albums were released after his 1996 death, every one of which he had gone platinum. Many people wondered if Shakur knew of his death before it happened. A month before his death, he filmed a music video for the song I Ain't Mad At You." In the video, he shot six times before dying in an ambulance. Later, as a spirit, he's seen riding down around in a limo that resembled Knight's car. When he arrives in heaven, he's met by comedian Red Fox and invited to a jam session with Miles Davis, Billy Holiday, and Marvin Gaye, Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong, and Jimi Hendrix, among others. And Shakira sings along with a heavenly host that does make you wonder, was the video a premonition or just a coincidence? You know, basically what it comes down to is whoever committed this murder has got to be living in fear. Somebody's going to reveal his identity. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk more about other ghosts of Las Vegas. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.